Hello there, my name is David Clayton. I am here with uh, two friends of mine. One is Father Brad Elliott, a Dominican priest, um, currently based in Washington, D.C., but from the, uh, what do you call it, the Western province. Dominican province. The Western Dominican province, yeah. so I know him from uh, California here. Uh, and then also uh, Dr. Michelle Akkad, who is my doctor and a, a member of my church, and if you've um, followed any of the podcasts that I've done on the way of beauty, uh, you'll have uh, seen his name mentioned. So we are here today to discuss uh, a book that was suggested by Michel. And so I'm going to let him talk about this first. It's by a, a now deceased priest called Father Ivan Illich, and it's called Shadow Work. If you're watching this, uh, there is the, the book. Um, and it's a series of essays and um, I had not read any of these beforehand, and Father Brad will tell us, but I don't think I don't think he had either. So what I and but it's extremely interesting. We're just going to discuss one essay um, about the uh, institution of uh, the Spanish language uh, through academia, a sort of systematized systematized introduction of the Spanish language. Uh, in the 16th century and the impact that had on society. Now, that may sound like a strange topic to be interested in, but even Illich makes this relevant to today, I think. And I think this is what Michel has spotted. So, Michel, why don't you uh, start? Tell us, first of all, why you're enthusiastic about Illich. Tell us a little bit about him. And then... Um, why you suggested this essay. So you just bring us up to speed here uh, sure. with the listeners. Uh, yeah, I. so I'll tell you, uh, you know, historically how I learned about, or how I, I discovered Ivan Illich. And I first discovered him, I think it must have been 15 years ago, maybe more, I can't remember when. But I discovered him when, by some circumstances, I spotted an article that he had written in the 70s uh, in the Lancet about medicine, about the state of health. It, it was a critique. It was a scathing critique of the healthcare system. And, um, and I, I, uh, I, I thought it was a, a fantastic essay. And um, because then, I mean, I, I knew I was, I, I was immersed in my studies and I was, I think in my residency or perhaps I was already, you know, in my more advanced, the more advanced phase of my studies, but I was, I was clearly dissatisfied like many uh, people, but I'm trying to understand what's wrong with this healthcare system. And I came across this essay by Ivan Illich written in the 1970s, uh, highly critical of, of, uh, of the modern medical system. And I, and I thought, this is great. I bought a whole bunch of books. I went and I, I realized that he had written not just on medicine, but he had written on a variety of other topics, including education and and he seemed like an interesting social critic to me. And I got the, the books and I think I read the one he had written a large, uh, you know, a volume on medicine and the other stayed on my shelves unread for many, many, many years. <laughs> and I think at the time it was hard for me to sort of situate Illich to understand him fully. Um, I was not, I was away from the church at, at that time. So the church was not a big preoccupation of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, my, my worldview in general was very different from what it is now. And so those books languished on my shelves for many years. 
Um, until I, uh, uh, I think last year, Charlie, who now has joined us, Charlie Dust yeah. is here with us. Charlie sent me a, uh, a um, uh, you know, an email saying, listen, uh, check out this essay by a man named David Cayley uh, on, uh, on, on Ivan Illich. And David Cayley was writing, wrote a, uh, an article imagining what Ivan Illich would say in response to our pandemic uh, lockdowns and you know the, the response to the pandemic and so I read that essay and I thought it was a terrific uh, essay there were ideas that uh, David Cayley was relating about Ivan Illich that once again I found very compelling regarding medicine and public health and how we deal with all these issues and I invited David uh, Cayley to come on my medical podcast I have a medical podcast separately and uh, and we had a great conversation and um, in the following that podcast, I, I, my interest in Ivan Illich was rekindled. And so I started reading more. David Cayley just published a very important volume uh, simply called Ivan Illich. I think the subtitle is An Intellectual Journey. And uh, where he, he, you know, explains not only the complex thought of Illich, but his, um, his interesting life and so forth. So it, that can take us in a very long tangent. So, and I've already been speaking too much, but let me give you maybe in, in a couple of minutes. Ivan Illich was a, a, a priest. Uh, he was ordained in the 1950s. He was a very bright person. I mean, evidently recognized within the church as being extremely bright. He spoke many languages. He had come from a kind of an, you might say it's kind of an aristocratic background in in the uh, ex um, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. You know, he he, he was born in in uh, what is now you know Croatia, or and uh, and became uh, became a priest in the 1950s. Um, moved to the U.S. was was dispatched to the U.S. to do some work, and and in the U.S. became very interested. Um, in studying, and that's become essentially became the main his main intellectual theme, is the relationship between, or or how large institutions, uh, in a way, corrupt. I think he probably used the term corrupt Christian virtues. And and so that that's sort of the the dominant theme, and not only so, and that applies not only to modern institutions like the healthcare system the educational system and many other things that he talks about, but he became very critical of the church itself. And he thought that the church itself had sort of, um, he never, he remained and he, 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 he considered himself a, 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 a priest in good standing and he was never, um, um, he never thought that he was, you know, advancing heretical ideas, if you will, but certainly, um, from a point where he was very popular and supported within the church, he, uh, his, uh, his fortunes within the church changed. And he was asked no longer to, to speak as a theologian, or in fact, his books at the time were put on the list of, uh, on the index of, uh, I forgot the, the exact name, the index of forbidden books. Um, in the late 60s, uh, the late 70s, he lost some of the support that he had within the hierarchy of the Vatican. Uh, because they, those people either, you know, died or whatnot. And then the new guard, you know, was critical of what he was doing. And he, um, 
he he uh, voluntarily uh, relinquished the public, you know, his public ministry as a priest. And he said that he would not speak, he would no longer speak, he would no longer minister as a priest, he would no longer speak uh, to, you know, claiming to represent the church. Uh, but he continued to write books and he wrote books that in the 70s and, and mostly in the 70s were extremely, extremely popular uh, in the secular world, in the academic secular world. He wrote books that were critical of uh, the educational system, the as I mentioned, the healthcare system and whatnot. And apparently he had, I mean, he would was invited around the, the world, Germany, uh, England, the US, packed auditoriums on campuses to hear his ideas. And he, uh, he was, um, I mean, it, it was part of the, the, the movement of the 1960s. I mean, right, the revolutionary, revolutionary thoughts and ideas of the 1960s. But you couldn't pigeonhole him. I mean, he was clearly not, you know, a hippie or anything like that. I mean, he had ideas that were very unusual, but there, there was a kind of a, a rebellious and revolutionary fever in his writing about mm -hmm. how to reconsider all these, you know, established institutions. And he became very, very popular, but... In the secular world itself, he had a change of fortune as well, because he started writing books that all of a sudden went against the grain of um, what what his uh, erstwhile supporters um, thought was was proper. Uh, he wrote a book called Gender that uh, irritated a lot of the feminists that up until then were following him. And essentially, he was canceled. He was one of the, maybe the first cancellations, uh, but he continued to write. And, uh, and he's, he became close friend with David Cayley, who I'm, I just mentioned, who eventually wrote, wrote the, the, the book that was just published. And David Cayley collected interviews by, by Ivan Illich. He continues to have a small following, although he was much less influential in the 1980s and 1990s. And he eventually died in 2003. But he continued to write books, and and as I discover them now, and I'm not, uh, I don't know him deeply, I find his thoughts and his ideas very provocative and I, I'm sort of wrestling with them. And there are many things that I, I think are um, extremely important in what he says. I, I don't always agree with everything the way he puts it and whatnot, but I, I think whatever he says is, is uh, provocative and, um, and worth discussing. So that's, okay. that's where I'll stop here. So, uh, I'm just going to summarise what I've heard. Tell me whether I've got this. So you're painting the picture of an original thinker. Uh, we need to be careful as we read him. It's not all that. It's not all good, but he definitely has insights which are valuable. And uh, I'm going to suggest, based on what I've read and what I've heard, that he's grappling with this paradox of uh, between um, an order that that represents the pattern of society and the freedom of the individual or the, the human person um, and how there seems to be this tension between, uh, should we say, government and freedom uh, in its various manifestations in society. And that's what he's uh, grappling with. And that's what makes him interesting for me today. Um, 
So is that fair? Is that a... yeah? I think that's right. And okay. I, I, I don't. I don't think it's just government. I think it's institutions in general. So he's well, critical I, of. Yeah, uh, I'm using but, sort of government in the sense of correct. Uh, in the most broad generic term, governing or uh, policy. That's right. Because I think in many ways, in, in my view, and, and we'll maybe we'll we'll have a chance to discuss that. Many the reason we have very large institutions is because they they are helped by by government in a way into yeah. being large institutions. Right? Yes. I mean, that's sort of built yeah. in to, uh, to how our modern societies uh, are organized. Okay, so now we go from all these sort of modern institutions and we go to 16th century Spain and this essay, which you recommended that we read first. So tell us about that. Right, um, so that I put it in the context, it's, it's part of a book called Shadow Work, which is where he, um, he, he, he examines um, the way economists view society. And um, in this book, he develops an idea and an attraction for what he ends up calling the vernacular, yeah. uh, which means, yeah. which I would interpret as the spontaneous way that people live together. Okay. Right? As opposed to the institutional or, you know, the things that are organized from top down yes if you will and and so uh, among these essays that address the various aspects of the tension between the vernacular and the institutional is this essay where he relates uh, a historical uh, event uh, at the court of uh, queen isabella in <laughs> in spain in the 1500s right at the dawn of modernity, right as uh, Columbus is being, right, is launching his caravels to, to go discover the new world. Uh, there's a man by the name of Nebrija, Antonio, Elia Antonio Nebrija, who was um, an intellectual uh, who uh, pleaded or petitioned the queen to take the grammar of the Castilian language that he had devised and spread it and impose it on the whole of Spain and to, you know, to educate the mass, the masses, but only to educate the masses, but also to, to allow the queen to spread, right? I mean, to, to, to use language, to make language a tool of the, the Spanish monarchy. Yes, and this goes beyond simply ease of communication. This is about sort of the structure of the language governing thought and behavior is, is his argument. Standardizing, right? I mean, the, yes. the key point is standardizing as opposed, because you're right, the communication, which was fascinating to me, he points out, uh, Illich point, points out that at that time, the printing press had been advent, uh, invented already. There were hundreds of uh, uh, things being published in the vernacular, yeah. in, in the various different dialects of Spain and, and throughout Europe. And people were reading all these things in different languages, and it seemed for, you know, those who are, you know, the the, the more bureaucratic minded, uh, uh, right, in the world, it seemed too chaotic, and it needed there was something that needed to, to be organized and ordered and and uh, and dealt with. It, it it was viewed as a problem, whereas Illich views it as a as a good that has been squashed. When I was reading, uh, Illich's Father Brad talking, yeah, <laughs> yeah, when I was, yeah, this is Father Brad talking. I was reading Illich's description of the few decades right after 
the invention of the printing press and the proliferation of the new codec, the books that are going out and going all around because of the printing press, it struck me as a parallel to our own time a few decades after the uh, in, uh, kind of the proliferation of, of the internet throughout the uh, world. Yeah. And because we have, we are right, we are at that same horizon of a brand new mode of communication, which is uh, opening up, opening up uh, vistas of information that have never, that has have never been, you know, accessible before to whole communities of, of people. And we're right on that verge of struggling with these same issues. So right now the internet is, a, <laughs> is in many ways kind of like what the world of Nabriha was in the 1480s and 1490s with the um, explosion of books in a variety of vernacular languages that people finally had access to for the first time in their life. And for, like you said, for the bureaucratically minded, it seemed like a little bit of chaos that had to be tamed. Right. Yes, <laughs> like it had to be tamed. And if it's going to be tamed, it needs to have a tamer. You know? I completely agree with you. I, that, I had the same thought. And I'm thinking right now of the the Tim Cooks and the uh, Googles of, of the world pleading to the governments to put order into this chaos and, and to yeah. right and to have the, the YouTube standard of conversation exactly. be, you know, be passed on. So well, it was fascinating to me as I was reading Illich's the, the account of this time, because, you know, when one that when the printing press was available to people and when there was, in a sense, a free market of books. There was that dangerous, uh, that dangerous uh, reality of ideas being spread that were not part of the were not part of the establishment ideas. You know, that's that's very dangerous. Right. Um, I'm just going to jump in, Charlie. Are, are you with us? I see your your picture on the screen there. Yes, I'm here. Okay, so why don't you, this is Charlie Dice, who wasn't here right at the beginning. He's uh, calling in from a sailing ship somewhere in the bay. Um, uh, not quite, but close <laughs> enough. Or in, in the harbour somewhere. Um, so you heard most of what Michel said in our, our discussion. You're the, the one who rediscovered Illich, shall we say, for all of us. Uh, just in the light of what we've been saying, why don't you talk about your enthusiasm for Illich and what caught your eye as you read him um, and then speak to some of the particulars of this essay as well if you can. Yes uh, thank you I, I discovered Illich at a time when I was on the verge of converting to, uh, uh, to becoming a member of the Catholic Church converting to Catholicism and you could say in a way that I either that Illich helped my conversion along or maybe that I converted in spite of him because the way that he writes about the Catholic Church, there's definitely a tension in terms of the institution, the human institution, which we all know is flawed. I think he kind of lays bare some of its flaws in a way that makes it a little bit hard if you're sort of standing right on the verge of, uh, of uh, crossing the Tiber, then it, it becomes... Uh, there's a stark contrast in terms of, you know, becoming a non-denominational Christian as I was at the time to identifying uh, with an institution that can be blamed for various, you know, inquisitions or things that we can point to as 
being somehow uh, you know, less than living up to the, the ideals of the gospel. And I think that uh, Michel did a good job kind of giving the overview, the details of his life and his thought. Uh, and there's one thing in particular in, in sort of summarizing it. I'm just actually getting to the end of David Cayley's book where he really gets to the core of this idea of kind of the corruption of Christianity being reflected in various institutions, including the modern church. And he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, illustrating the, the idea that Christianity has a certain effect on all of these different worlds. There's, you know, the Jewish people occupied a certain world. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the Levite who passes the, the man in the ditch by because he would be come ritually unclean according to his world's rules. If he were to do anything to, to touch that man, he wouldn't be able to perform his religious duties. And the Samaritan, likewise, is from a certain world. And, uh, or I'm, yeah, the, uh, but, the, but the Samaritan uh, helps the man in the ditch in spite of the, the difference between them, the difference between their worlds. Uh, and Christianity, this effect of kind of breaking down the barriers between worlds, the thing is, with Christianity, that cannot become an ethos itself. The, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, illustrates a, a, something that is sort of beyond, um, you know, there's no, in, in a way, I think that it gets to this question of, you know, what is Christian culture? Because in the West, we have an idea of Christian culture. But in a sense, once you institutionalize the gospel as a rule, uh, and, it, and you create uh, helping institutions, charitable institutions, you separate the act of, uh, of you know, giving the charity from the, the real sort of source uh, mm. of charity that in the gospel, at least. Uh, so this is something that I've wrestled with, too, um, as the, you know, before becoming Catholic and as a Catholic, uh, you know, how do we keep that uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in mind without just leaning on institutions to do some of the heavy lifting. Uh, so there's also kind of the libertarian angle where Illich is not really properly uh, considered a libertarian, um, but I think that he can sharpen a libertarian's instincts and sharpen a libertarian's arguments. And in the same way, I think that, uh, you know, as, as Catholics, we can definitely uh, sharpen our senses by reading Illich and by trying to understand him and his critique of institutions. Yeah, including the, the church. I, I'll just come in here and just give a little bit of my impression of uh, this chapter and the ideas that uh, occurred. Um, first of all, I found the, uh, the historical account of the introduction of the, the, uh, the, the Spanish language, and he goes on to talk about Caxton in England as well, the, the sort of uh, standardization of language and then the parallels he draws to uh, the, um, the, the, the overall effect of institutions imposing things in a top-down way. And uh, one thing that occurred to me is that th this uh, is really the problem we're seeing today is this yearning for uh, some sort of authority for elites, for uh, institutions, governments, standards 
that, as, as you described it, Michelle, bring order out of this. The, it's more the fear of chaos mm. than the chaos. Um, and it reminds me, uh, uh, and Father, you're here, so you can redirect me if I'm wrong, but I think of the Israelites saying, we want a king, um, when in fact God is, is the king. And for us, Christ is, is the king. Mm. And there and so if we believe that we sh if god gives us free will then we should respect free will in others we should trust people on the whole uh to act freely uh and we have to understand what freedom is which is a whole different uh debate uh, but with illich there is a sort of paradox there um which is always affecting his discussion especially when you get more directly into the uh, the criticism of the church in that I think it's fair for, uh, when you do so uh, and criticize the, the functions of the church as a human institution, but the, the one institution which really is uh, capable of acting as God is the mystical body of Christ. And so in some respects, this institution does have kingship, does have authority, and has the right to centrally impose. It's not that there, there shouldn't be any imposition. It's a question of who's doing it and who's doing it well. And th there's always going to be this tension within the church, and Illich is pointing this out. Um, it's that We know it's there now. I mean, we're, we're well aware of these, these, uh, these tensions. Um, but also, any institution... Um, He's not arguing, I don't think, for anarchy generally across his writing. Yeah. Um, th there are proper roles for some centralised authority, some centralised institutions. But the minute you create it, this yearning to worry about what people who are free and not as clever as I am, uh, to, to do it badly, and what, what will happen if all of that happens, is just a a tension that exists within society and plays out all the way through. And Illich is articulating this in, in the, his time, the, the 70s and 80s, but it really applies today. I mean, this I think this is the in the political forum especially, uh, um, and all the things connected with that, the economic forum, this is what we're seeing playing out today. I couldn't agree more, David. And I was, I was uh, reading... Illich just struck me as not only applicable today, but almost every time in history, it's the fundamental human fear of chaos. It's the fundamental human fear of uh, a very, very complex society that we cannot control. Right. So, so what we see in society, what we see in any human society, even in a smaller, the smaller society of the family, there is a fundamental element of unpredictability and because there's unpredictability, there's an element of, of chaos in human behavior and in human interaction out of which emerges an, uh, a, a beautiful order. But there's a fear of the unpredictability and the chaos in human society. And out of that fear, there's this constant human temptation to impose a type of order that we can understand or an order that comes from that comes from the, a centralized mind like one mind one controller one planner that is going to impose on 
the whole a type of system of predictability and regularity. And this is one way of answering the problem of chaos. It's one way of doing it. And in certain, in certain situations, it actually works. In certain small situations, it works. Uh, in local communities, it tends to work very well because you have relationships of subsidiarity when maybe when the one in, the one in charge is very, is very close to, to those who, who he governs. Yet in larger institutions, let's say like a, a whole nation, let's say like the, the whole, the, the people, the people speaking the Spanish language, for example, in this exam, in this, in this book, the imposition of one standardized order might bring benefits, but then there's also a cost. There's a great cost that comes along with that. The cost is of what is, what is lost. And there's something beautiful in the order of the vernacular languages that was lost. There was a kind of a beauty in uh, what Illich just simply called the vernacular element of, of society that was lost simply because they were all uh, forced to adopt a, a standard, one standard. And this is why at first, at first, when I was reading the essay and upon my first read of the essay, I thought it was just kind of this rhetorical connection between Nebriha and the voyage of Christopher Columbus. I just thought it was kind of a rhetorical, you know, these two things happened at about the same time in history. And there was kind of a rhetorical connection, the way that Christopher Columbus discovered a new world and began the colonization of the new world. So did Nebriha begin the colonization of uh, the, the vernacular languages of the people in, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. He kind of started this colonization through a standardization of language. But I think that connection is more than rhetorical because I think it, it's amazing. The, the same way that Christopher Columbus in many ways discovered a whole new hemisphere, even though he went to his death, not realizing what he had discovered. So in a certain sense did Nebriha in this top-down imposition of a unified language establish an unprecedented modern state, which began to control, uh, control the education and the thinking of its people through a medium of communication. And Illich does a very good job in the essay of bringing out how unprecedented that was. So in the same way that in a sense, Columbus discovered a new hemisphere and ushered in the modern world, uh, Nebriha in a sense discovered a new, a whole new hemisphere of political rule. The political rule through a mode of, com of communication, which is standardized, where not only, not only can kings and queens and monarchs uh, communicate in one standardized language, but then they can even in, in a certain sense begin to control the message. It was, in a, whole new, it was a whole new political hemisphere. That's terrific, Father Brad. I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, some thoughts on what you just said. Um, so Illich wrote uh, further on language. In fact, he wrote a couple of books that are really dedicated to the question of language. One is called um, the ABC, the alphabetization of the popular mind. Mm. And another one is called in the vineyard of the text. Um, and I'm not sure in which one of his books, but he, he rails against the, the impoverishment of our modern expressions where they really, they're very, they're almost, we use expressions in our everyday language that are spoon fed. We regurgitate idioms that are completely stale and, and prefabricated by the media and so forth. And I, and I realized it in my own language as compared to when I was a child, at some point we, I, 
I was I was I'm, I come from Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon. During the troubles in Lebanon in the 1970s, we moved to France, and in France, by you know uh, um, by by uh, some chance of circumstances, we uh, ended up uh, in a very in a um, low income neighborhoods where there were lots of um, immigrants from. In fact, there were immigrants from Spain because in 1970s Spain was a very poor country, and a lot of people came, to, you know, Spanish people came to to France to work in in uh, in factories from Spain, from Portugal, from North Africa, Muslims and whatnot. And 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 I uh, and I, I I my language, my expressions, the 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 language that I used was so much richer, at least in my mind, in my recollection spontaneous and funny and rich and whatnot and all of this is lost and now i can't really speak uh, except in very stale sentences as i do right you know just mm -hmm. right now and all of this has been um has been has been lost yet there is um so that's that's one aspect the other aspect is so illich as as you can probably imagine was very instrumental in launching the homeschooling movement in the US, his mm. first major book was called Deschooling Society, published in 1970 or 1971. And, and it had a tremendous impact and a lot of the homeschool, you know, homeschooling movements, you know, start, uh, he played a role, he played a, a big role. Yet when, what we teach our kids in home, I mean, we, we try to teach them. So now homeschoolers, and, and that includes us, I mean, as a family of homeschooling family, Part of the appeal is that we think that we can teach standardized language better than the public schools do, <laughs> right? I mean, we're, yeah. we're trying to, to, right? I mean, we we haven't we haven't gotten to the point that Illich was is talking about. We we still use the standard language as our as our, as our standard, but we just claim that we can do it better than the public schools do. I think um, the, the, yeah. I'm going to say the savior for you there. I suggest is God's grace and personal freedom. Is that there's always hope through the faith and through the grace of God. What, what I was, what I was, the reason I say that is that as, as I'm listening to this, I, I've devoted a large part of my life really to trying to uh, see the re-emergence of a culture of beauty. And I've maintained one of my sort of arguments that's developed over the years is that, um, what, that a culture of beauty emerges in the way that we've heard described from free action uh, where those individual actions or personal actions are governed by God's grace. And so you have to give people freedom. And the moment you try and uh, institutionalize art, music, you, you, it might be an improvement over the disaster we have today, but it's actually not going to allow this beautiful pattern to emerge. But then it occurs to me that um, in the past, Maybe the, the reason that, that uh, they had beauti a beautiful culture in the past wasn't because people weren't trying to institutionally impose central control. It's just that they couldn't, and, right. uh, <laughs> whereas today they can. They're, they're, it, because of technology because and these institutions are developed, they're able to do it. Um, and so maybe I ought to become a sort of radical anarchist or something who wants to destroy <laughs> the whole of society, except that I have faith, trust in God's grace, that there is one authority that I can look to, and that is God, who is present through the church, uh, 
through the in the in the sacraments and so there is always hope even in today's world which is so given to sort of effective centralized control that is the answer and i would say in your family again we look to god and that is that breathes air mm -hmm. into the into the rigid environment the enclosed environment that otherwise we create for ourselves I think that's beautiful, David. Now, the the, the challenge for our world, we live, in a, we live in a thoroughly secularized society, in a thoroughly secularized society that does not have a God to look at, that does not have an ultimate, an ultimate mind that actually orders the universe freely and sweetly through the natures that he has created. We are going to enthrone something else in the place of God. And the, the, the modern superstition is to enthrone centralized bureaucratic institutions as that controlling, controlling governing force in society. And it is, I think it's a type of superstition where we believe that the only way that we're going to have in our godless world, the only way we're going to have order is if that order is imposed through some kind of a kind of a bureaucracy. Yeah, and that's kind of the natural result. That's the natural result of, of tr a truly secularized society. Charlie, I, I don't know. Have you? Do you have any thoughts based upon what you've heard um, at all? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge question. It, it, it there's so many different angles to approach. I mean, I came to that question mostly from the work of F. A. Hayek and kind of emergent order. Uh, both as an argument for a sort of classical liberalism, but also for rules, not saying that we shouldn't have any rules, but that uh, in a in kind of a, an organically grown uh, societal order, and Hayek hated the word society, so he would uh, chastise me for, for even calling it a societal order, uh, but that you have rules that evolve. Take just pri private property. That's a custom that pretty much evolves in every single society, at least with respect to certain things like ownership of tools, that if you can call something yours and I can call something mine, then we can both focus on what we're best at and reap the benefits of trade or share the bounty of what we have. Whereas if we don't allow for that custom to exist, then we spend all of our time trying to protect what's what we think is mine. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's definitely the existence of emergent order is not an argument against rules uh, per se. It's just uh, to say that we have to be very careful with how we meddle with them. And my favorite quote from Hayek, which I think that uh, Illich would also sort of appreciate is um, speaking of economics, that the curious task of economics is to illustrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. Um, but Illich is also very critical of classical economics, it seems. And even in this shadow work essay, he quote, he refers to Arthur Pigou, who was one of the, the early kind of, not, not so early. He was, I think, um, early 1900s. Uh, you know, he, he's the idea of the Paguvian tax, which is where you tax a negative externality. Um, and, and that, you know, makes it so that you get less pollution or, or whatever it might be. But um, Pagu also defined the term shadow work, came up with this idea of shadow work uh, to 
or the shadow price, not not shadow work, the shadow price referring to you know how much you would have to compensate someone um, for something that they're not doing in a market like let's say uh, a, a woman who stays home and and tends to the house while her husband goes off and does wage labor. Um, that idea of you know what would you have to pay a woman to do that work and you assign like a shadow price to it. Illich seems to be very much against this idea because it intrudes on the domain of the vernacular. It intrudes on this whole sector that economists had to define as uh, as the informal economy, but which previously it wasn't the informal economy. It was just stuff people did or something like that. But I, I, I'd like to hear what uh, what Michelle has to say about that kind of denigration of uh, classical economics. I don't know that it's all entirely deserved, but I do think that a lot of the, the econ profession, you know, they're, they're trying to measure things. And sometimes in order to measure something, uh, they have to strip away uh, some of the kind of the, the humanity of it. Right. I think you're correct, uh, Charlie, that he is critical of classical econ uh, economists. Um, I don't know to what extent he understands maybe the nuances between the different strands within the neoclassical economists. Uh, but I, I think, and that, you know, it's something that he t touches on uh, in the next chapter. So, in, you know, if we do, uh, you know, if we pursue this conversation about mm -hmm. the next chapter, he starts to develop, um, you know, to expand the scope beyond uh, language, which is the focus of this chapter, uh, into the economy. And so we'll have to uh, to examine Illich's thoughts maybe a little more critically because there are some benefits to institutions mm -hmm. in terms of right. I mean, scaling things and making things accessible to a lot of people. You know, making good material things accessible to a lot of people. And Illich tends to you know poo poo. Uh, these ideas, these, you know, that may be more, you know, too utilitarian for him. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to, I think it'd be good to to talk about Illich's view and con contrast it to, to modern economics, um, thinking when we, if we talk about that chapter, uh, because that's, that's where I think there's a weakness in taking the Illich position too far. At the same time, Illich just had me reconsider these things anyways, because at the end of the day, you never know what kind of society you're going to get, right? I mean, we're used to the material uh, comforts that uh, economies of scales and institutions have provided us. Um, are, are we um, happier for them or, you know, I mean, these are remain open questions. And so... Yeah, there's another... Um aspect to Illich's thinking that occurred to me as I read this and also other things that, about him. Um, and it's, it's approaching the same problem in a slightly different way, it seems to me. Um, and that is, that, that, again, through the problem of uh, institutionalizing things. And I've been involved in various uh, groups and societies where in order to facilitate try to help people to do things properly, um, they institute standardized processes. What then happens is that that curtails the freedom because it, it, the, the people become attached to that standardized process as the only way 
to do it. So rather than viewing it as something that aids uh, people uh, if, they, if they don't know what to do, it be actually becomes a limitation. It, it cuts out all creativity. Um, and this is one of the dangers of uh, institutions, of uh, authorities and governments. It, so that the, the natural tendency is very often um, that even if that's the, the body, which uh, the institution which created those standards doesn't actually have any authority over people, they treat it as though it does. That you know, people are looking to the, to the, you know, you're not doing it the way you should. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people become suspicious of those who deviate from it, um, rather than lo looking on it as an offering to those who are people who are acting freely. Um, and I've seen this in um, companies and office settings as well, that what become, you know, the consultants come in, they standardize things, and in many ways it's helpful, but actually it, the, in the process they cut out uh, creativity and originality and stifle actually the life force in many ways of what created the, the company in the, in the process. Um, and again, the, the only hope there uh, that's that's an inevitable tension, I think, because I'm not arguing against standardization. It, as you say, it, it, in many ways, it is helpful, it is useful, but uh, we have to be aware of the negative impacts of these sort of processes. Um, and I think Illich is, uh, my sense of him, I'd be interested to see what you say about this, is, is that he's too critical and doesn't acknowledge the benefits as well. And there is this tension with institutions. Would you say that's fair? I think that's correct. And I think maybe that, that perhaps that'll be more apparent in the next chapter okay. uh, if we discuss it. Um, uh, because in the next chapter, he will talk about um, what, what he calls the war on subsistence. That's the title of the chapter. And he, uh, he, tried to, he tries to harken back to a, a mode of living, subsistence living that has been lost. And, you know, we can argue that maybe he's, too, he's romanticizing a past that you know, wasn't there or was, you know, he, he, he forgets the brutality of, of the kind of life that may have existed in the past, but maybe not again. I mean, I, I think, I, I think there's enough in what he says to, to, to catch our attention and, and, and uh, to cause us to pause a little bit and, and rethink um, these benefits. So maybe we'll leave it at that. Cause I think I don't want to, Open the door to it. Yeah. Nor, well, why another conversation. I'm right? certainly interested in continuing this. I think this has been very, very interesting. Um, so we'll close there. Any any last words from uh, the others, Charlie, your father at all? Or should we just finish there? Yeah, we can just finish there. Okay. Okay. Well, until next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Charlie, Michelle, and Father Brad. Thanks for coming along. And we're glad you finally. Uh, Got the boat sorted out, Charlie. <laughs> to join us. Ah, there we go. There's the ship's <laughs> bell. <laughs> okay. So we'll until next time. Uh, goodbye and have a good week. Yeah,